0: Welcome, my name is Yvonne Benninger Rothschild. I'm the executive director of the EICC New York. This podcast is brought to you by the European American Chamber of Commerce, a platform where Europeans and Americans connect to do business. To produce this series, we have asked our members from across Europe and the United States to discuss current events and how they may affect transatlantic business activities. In addition to this recording, I invite you to listen to all of our podcasts you can find them on our website at eaccny.com/podcasts. I hope you will enjoy the insights our members, together with my team, have put together, and I encourage you to subscribe to the EACC podcast series on your favorite podcast server and to rate and share them with your friends and colleagues.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to this installment of Brexit Musings. My name is Paulo Fratini Melendez. I manage member engagement at the EACCNY, and I'm also your host for this series. So in this episode, we have James Lloyd and Keeley Blair, who are partners in Orrick Cyber and Privacy Group based in London. They are litigators by trade, but they're also experts in incident response, privacy matters, and regulatory enforcement. So this episode is going to be more of a discussion on the potential effects of Brexit on companies responding to cyber attacks and the impact on regulatory enforcement in the back end of these possible incidents. So it's a very interesting discussion, and with that, I'll pass it along to you, James.
2: Thanks, Paolo. Welcome, everyone, and hello, Keely. Hi, everyone. Nice to be here today. Indeed. Um, So we're, what, uh, 13, 14 days now away from the end of the transition period, and I thought it'd be quite helpful to just start with a brief summary on What's going to happen with cyber and privacy laws uh, come 1st of January 2021, because uh, the UK has got its, its, its freedom now to, to do what it likes in respect of, of privacy laws. Keely, do you want to sort of describe the uh, transformation of, of, of GDPR as, uh, as was into, into the UK GDPR? Yes,
3: it's it's an absolutely masterful rebranding by the UK government <laughs> um, of the European legislation. So essentially, as of as of 1 January 2021, the, U, the GDPR basically will be incorporated into UK law through the Data Protection Act 20, 2018, which we all know and love. Uh, and the GDPR will now be known as the UK GDPR. Essentially, it, there are very little changes. And this is also similar to the NIST directive, which is, while well, it's also derived from EU law, will remain in place and will remain good, good law in, in the UK. The interesting thing will be to see what happens in the future. So as of 1 January, everything's the same. We're on a, a level playing field, so to speak. But the question is to what extent the UK chooses to diverge from that going forward, right? We know from the UK government statements that they do intend to seek regulatory divergence from the EU and the national digital strat- national data strategy that was recently published. So essentially, the UK government has indicated that they're quite keen to seek some changes, but nobody knows what those changes will be, essentially. But as things stand going forward, the law, the fundamental law will remain the same, but there will be differences in terms of practice and what you need to do in terms of regulatory engagement and dealing with supervisory authorities, and it's particularly relevant in the case where there is a cyber attack, um so so james did you want to did you want to cover that that particular
2: piece yeah it's um i mean you know in summary so the the times when you're dealing with um regulators in europe under the gdpr sort of boils down to either somebody's complained about you or you've had to notify them of a cyber breach and that's that's the thing that people always cotton on to because of this 72-hour window during which uh, you have to tell them now gdpr provides for uh, what's called a lead supervisory authority regime and the idea behind this is it's a, it's a one-stop shop right so you can you effectively only have to tell one regulator amongst the formerly 28 now 27 member states of the EU uh, of a particular breach and and there are various rules governing governing which of those um, data protection authorities is your lead supervisor But, you know, fundamentally, the principle is to allocate the lead regulator and so avoid duplicate enforcement. Doesn't always work. It's fair to say, you know, the French regulator, the Camille, certainly is a bit more um, aggressive than the Irish regulator, for example, the DPC, and so has taken action against Google and the like. Um, The UK regulator, the ICO, the Information Commissioner, um, is generally perceived as one of the more active regulators in Europe. It's certainly quite pragmatic, tends to take a more commercial view. Uh, Its website is great, by the way, if you ever have privacy sort of concerns or questions, you know, just generally very accessible website, and it's worth a look. The main issue or the main consequence of Brexit is going to be that suddenly you've got these two regimes. So whereas before, you know, you could effectively rely on the fact that the ICO might be your regulator if it's your lead supervisory authority now it's going to be your regulator if you're simply doing business or transfer processing data in the uk and you may have uh, one of the european regulators so now you stand the chance to be dealing with two rather than one regulator so if you've got links that's something to really think about in practice keely is is that going to matter do you think i mean you know it's all very well Dealing, given that the GDPR and the UK GDPR are effectively the same laws, in the meantime, presumably you're just going to be telling the same regulators the same things.
3: So, yeah, I mean, you know, that's a that's a really good point, and and you're right. In practice, you will be telling the same regulators the same things because obviously you're going to be consistent across across all of your regulatory engagement pieces. But as our colleagues in the in the US know just because you're engaging with 50 state attorneys general doesn't mean that uh, it's the same level of engagement across the piece, right? So whilst the facts remain the same, there'll be different priorities, you'll be asked different questions, you're still going to have to interface with two separate regulators, ultimately, who may or may not reach the same conclusions, even though the law is the same, because ultimately, every regulator is going to interpret the law differently. They all have their own foibles. So, In reality, unfortunately, it does create an extra limb of work in most of the international cyber attacks and and ransomware breaches that we've been dealing with. You know, we often see our clients breathe a sigh of relief that at least there's only one regulator they have to deal with in Europe. Um, Now, because the UK is no longer part of the EU, they will have to deal with the UK ICO and potentially a European regulator if, if the incident affects UK and EU data subjects. In practice, does it change how you deal with an incident? N- not really. You know, you'll still be following the same, same tried and tested methodology of triaging the incident, stopping the bleeding, conducting your investigation, usually under privilege, please under privilege, and dealing with any notifications that flow from that analysis. All of these things will be unaffected by Brexit. You're just going to continue on doing them. It's just that you have another regulator that you need to bear in mind. And the other thing that you'll need to think about is to what extent you might need to appoint a specific representative in either jurisdiction, the the UK or the EU. But that's that's a more general data privacy question rather than just in relation to cybersecurity attacks. Um, And again, that's a a complicated analysis. And as you know, we we laugh when we say it, but it's true. It always depends. Right. That's the the delights of, of, of GDPR and in particular privacy. But I think that the key thing for for clients when I've talked to them about this is actually, you know, practically, is this like, is it really going to matter? Are we not going to see the the UK ICO just kind of falling in step with European regulators? There's a lot of talk about continued cooperation. Or are we really going to start to see a divergence? James, what's, what's your sense on that one?
2: Honestly, I have no idea, but I would like to. I, I mean, it, it, it's all gonna. It's all gonna depend. I keep seeing all the social media is alive with the bars of of white smoke having risen over the uh, the European Union, and and suddenly we've got a deal. And so it, it's all gonna depend on uh to what extent the u k wants to stay aligned with with europe i mean there are differences already right you know like you've already touched on them that the the, the i c o as i've said is a pretty pragmatic regulator you know you contrast that with the same data protection authorities in berlin for example, who are perhaps taken more what would you say a more um, uh, conservative, strict, yeah. conservative <laughs> approach to the to the g d p r um in comparison with with the i c o and i think you, you always, I mean, the way that we approach these things is that we always seek local advice. We're very lucky we have some good, excellent colleagues in in, in Germany who can help us sort of navigate those little quirks. But, you know, that, that's just a sort of consequence of the different cultures across the EU. Um, I think fundamentally, it's going to be very, it's very unlikely that you're going to see too much of a divergence from, from GDPR. I think it's going to be Given that the push is generally in favor of GDPR standards, you're seeing it with the new CRPA in California. You're seeing it, um, where else, goodness, in India, somewhat in Brazil with their new laws. There's generally a view that the GDPR is perceived as this gold um, standard in terms of privacy laws. And so while there might be something to gain by scaling that back and hoping to gain some sort of competitive advantage, I can't really see anything fundamental changing because at the end of the day, these are pretty important human rights and um, they need to be protected so yeah watch this space but um, I think it's pretty doubtful that anything's going to change too much I think you you touched on privilege actually Keely I just wonder if it's worth a quick look at you know why privilege is important to uh, investigations and and particularly the difference um, when it comes to the UK and Europe Um, so thinking in particular about civil law jurisdictions and the sort of absence of privilege is it Mm -hmm. worth talking about that?
3: Well, you know, we're lawyers, we love talking about privilege. So uh, uh, absolutely. And I mean, I think it's it's something which I think, you know, that the, the Brits and, and the Americans are much more aligned on, frankly, in terms of um, the importance of, of privilege and, and um, how privilege can be used as a shield um, in investigations. And that's because of, frankly, the difference in our disclosure rules comparatively to our friends of the continent. And so, for that reason, we do see that that impact that, that approach to privilege impacting on cybersecurity practice and incident response practice, particularly when you're involving insurers. So we found, James, I know have had a few examples of this this year, and um, particularly in, in in France and in, in and in Belgium and Luxembourg actually, where we've um, been dealing with incident response work, and the insurers have expected an awful lot of what we would say is privileged information to be disclosed to them. Following a cybersecurity attack, and you know, you and I and, and our American colleagues all balk at the idea. And the Europeans are like, "What? It's fine. It's no problem. What damage can you know? They're unsure. Of course, we want to share information with them." So I do think that is that is an area where there is potentially um, some, some nuance. But I mean, it's also interesting, you know, again outside of the the just the pure cyber regime, you know, we saw that Facebook made the decision to move its UK. Uh, data subject processing to Facebook Inc in the US, but rather than leaving it in Ireland where it had been. Um, so I do think we're going to start seeing more of that um, from American companies, perhaps seeing the UK as a more business friendly regime than Europe. So thinking about ways in which they can take their data outside of European hands. But whilst the UK GDPR remains aligned to GDPR, you've got to ask, what's the upside in doing that? I mean, perhaps, operate, perhaps operational efficiencies. But it, it is interesting. I I do think that we're gonna start we're gonna start seeing the plates shift, basically. We, we we all we all had to go through a big tectonic shift in twenty eighteen when, when the GDPR came into force and get used to this new world order. And I think Brexit is uh, another reshifting of those plates and we're gonna to have to see what the landscape looks
2: like afterwards. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I guess the other the other big thing to think about, particularly with the recent attacks on SolarWinds and, and the security firm Mandiant is from a pure cybersecurity point of view, just the mm-hmm. way in which Brexit is potentially going to harm cooperation between the UK and EU. So, I mean, obviously, the, the attacks themselves show that you know absolutely nobody is safe from this threat. And I think as you and I often um, tell clients not just to scare them, but it is true. It's, it's not so much a matter of um, if you get hit, it's a matter of when. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the cross-border cooperation that we have seen between the UK and the EU um, and indeed the US, is, um, if you think about the wider sort of Five Eyes um, intelligence community, you know, my view is that this is going to erect barriers as between um, the UK and the EU. And therefore, you are going to see uh, a reduced level of cooperation. I can't really see how it's going to be any, any other way. I mean, do, do you agree with that? It's going to have a chilling effect
3: I think it's going to be really interesting to see how, how it all, all pans out. And, it, it, you know, I think larger awareness of cybersecurity is is absolutely happening across the board. Right. So the FT editorial piece this morning was on the prevalence of cybersecurity attacks. You know, we're seeing more and more organizations recognizing the threat uh, that exists And so you would think that would push countries into better and closer cooperation in order to address things like, for example, the solar wind attack. And, you know, our professional hearts go out to to, to the folks at Mandiant who I think dealt with it incredibly well, actually, and and should be applauded for the way in which they shared information regarding the incident with the cyber community. You know, and I think all of that should push us towards closer cooperation. But it, it's like as you said, when there's there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits to be gained from cooperation. But also you can start to see when people start looking at competitive advantage um, how do we attract business? How do we keep business here? Well, how do we get people to pick London rather than Dublin? you know you can see that there is there, there may perhaps be a, a lowering of standards but it, it's interesting because we're also seeing different mood music coming out of for example the city of London and Accenture uh, launched a report this week about making London a hub for cyber insurance for example and how London is uniquely placed to, to be a hub for cyber insurance given our legal profession uh, the wealth of insurance knowledge that we have here and also that the joy that London has of sitting between time zones which is very helpful, actually, when dealing with international incidents. So it's so hard to tell what it's going to be going forward. But I think you're right. I think there is going to be more suspicion, perhaps. And and certainly, I think from a a European perspective, you know, UK surveillance laws have come under pretty significant criticism from European um, regulators. and, And that's an issue in terms of international data transfer that the Americans have been grappling with for some time. And now you're going to have to add us Brits into the equation as well.
2: Yeah, it's huge, but, right? I mean, because the the irony of course being that, you know, the UK has had these surveillance laws for years and years and yeah. <laughs> suddenly it becomes a third country and 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 you're no longer adequate for the purposes of GDPR uh, data protection. Uh, obviously there are all manner of political reasons behind that and it's going to be really interesting to see with I guess with the new Biden administration and eventually mm-hmm. the discussions that take place regarding the replacement of privacy shield, you know, if if, if, if that does happen is that also going to apply to the UK, right? I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. It's um It remains to be seen whether whether the EU is going to grant adequacy. But as you say, based on the scope of our intelligence, uh, intelligence laws and uh, surveillance laws, I I think it's pretty unlikely.
3: Yeah, I think it's also worthwhile noting that there are a number of European countries who are actively advocating against an adequacy decision for the UK uh, in relation to because of our surveillance laws. So there was um, a number of opinions filed with the uh, EU Commission relating to um, concerns about UK surveillance laws and it, uh, you're right and it's deadly ironic right once you're once you're a member of the club you can misbehave a little bit but if you're outside the club and you misbehave then we're concerned <laughs> so it, it is one of those you know one rule for the members one rule for everybody else and now unfortunately for, for us in the UK we're now in the everybody else camp and I think we'll face greater scrutiny as a result but maybe that will result in a hiring of standards you know it will be, it'll be really interesting to see but I mean, and I certainly from it, if
2: you know, if you are a US company who's currently transferring data from the EEA to the UK for whatever reason, um, mm-hmm. and maybe from the UK onwards, that, that's going to create a real headache in the event yeah. that you don't get an adequacy decision right. You know, it's it, I, I can't, you know, absent an adequacy decision, just the, the protections that you've got to put in place post post Schrems and the the European Court's decision in in that and the effects on um, technical, mm-hmm. organisational and contractual measures. Wow, it's 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 a lot to wrap your head around. I mean, that's 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 like an hour presentation in itself, I guess. But yeah, it, it's it's just worth mentioning. Obviously, if, if if you are in that position, you know, you've got to be looking at what your data flows are like. You've got to try and figure out whether they're important, whether you need to ensure that they continue, as I'm sure they do. But having said that, you know, we do have clients who have similar data flows, and you know, they're not as important, and they are things that you ought to consider uh, whether you really truly need them uh, going forward.
3: Yeah. I think I think international data transfers is, is an area where, you know, we, as you said, we could talk about it forever at the moment. There's so much to say on it, but it's 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 a real it's a real issue, real issue for organisations and, and not one that has an easy, easy solve. I think I think at the moment, though, with in terms of doing any risk assessment regarding the UK, you can do exactly what you suggested, James, which is point to the fact that, look, we used to be part of the club our standards and laws are still the same. Of course we're adequate. No need to put any re- additional safeguards in place here, sir. Move along. Standard contractual clauses will be fine.
2: Yeah, I, defin- I definitely can see that's right. But I guess, you know, with the, with the le- as the UK leaves, you know, you're, you are losing that pragmatic yeah. partner, right? You know, like we were saying before, with the cultural kind of differences between the approach, the more conservative approach of some European member states versus perhaps the more commercial approach of the UK. And so Maybe you will see this kind of hardening in the approach of um, European regulators as a result of the the ICO dropping out. Although, of course, you've still got the Irish DPC in there, um, which has come in for a lot of criticism recently.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, I no, think, you know, the, the reality is the Irish DPC is doing everyone's work for them, right? If you look at the, the number of investigations that they're the lead supervisory authority on under the one stop shop principle, you know, I wouldn't want to be Helen Dixon. She's got so much to do. It's, it, and under such incredible pressure. Um, yeah. I do have I do have a large degree of sympathy. And I do think that these these investigations are complex. They need due process. You know, I know in the twenty-four hour news cycle and the quick fixes culture that we have now, there's always that like, why does it take two years to investigate something? The answer is it's complicated. And there's mm-hmm. an appeals process and there's the option to make rep- written and oral representations. And and all of those things are good things overall, but they mean that these investigations do take time. And I think sometimes that nuance is lost in in the wider community and the sort of, you know, we want headlines, we want fines, we want punishment sort of way of looking at the world it's actually well is that is that really beneficial you know aren't we better to have a, a good process that results in good regulation and good enforcement action I think we are actually that
2: would be my my sense of it but no absolutely yeah the, the more certainty the better as we sit here waiting for a deal
3: <laughs> <laughs> any time now I know it's like it's like it's like, it's like the worst advent ever It's like, am I going to get to the, you know, every, every day I open my advent calendar and I hope there's a a deal and an adequacy decision in there. And every day I find it's just chocolate. Deeply disappointing. Um, (laughs) But who knows? Who knows? And I think, you know, it's uh, the reality is this is, this is the beginning of a new phase. Right. And, and I think that's how rather than the end. And I think that's kind of how certainly, you know, you and I, when we talk about it, we, we, we see there's a lot of potential opportunity going forward. But there's also some some difficulties that are going to need to be ironed out. And the reality is we're now going to have two regimes. That's 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 where we are. The Americans have done a good job.
2: Yeah, two, two regimes, but hopefully not very many differences, at least not in the short term. So I think in terms of a practical, practical um, point to perhaps leave everybody with, it's, you know, don't panic. Um, probably you know, very little is going to change in the short term. And it's important. to you, you don't need to be doing anything right now.
3: I think that's I think that's exactly right. And the other thing is, you know, we always talk about the lead supervisory authorities are not going to come knocking on your door tomorrow being like, tell us more about your Brexit planning it's not going to happen it's going to be incredibly unlikely but as time goes on you do have to have made changes to reflect the the new reality but they should be yep. careful and consider changes and not just knee jerk reactions and the more information we have the better we the better changes we can make that actually work from a legal and an operational perspective and a technology perspective but that all takes time to get aligned
2: right couldn't agree more fantastic
1: yeah, I 100% agree, Keely. That I mean, we need that that knowledge, the foresight, to actually make these these uh, changes in practice. So that concludes this episode with uh, James Lloyd and Keely Blair from ORC. Thank you very much for your time and speaking with us today, and thank you to our audience. And we hope that you enjoyed this program and stay tuned for our next podcast where we muse about Brexit. Take care.
0: Thank you for joining us for this podcast from the European American Chamber of Commerce, New York. Please remember to subscribe and rate this episode and be sure to check out the complete list of recordings on our website at eaaccny.com/podcasts. If you have any thoughts or comments about this series, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to us at membership at EACCNY.com to learn more about our work, how to get involved, and how to join our transatlantic network.